As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, May 1st, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and at inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Need a mortgage, but your finances don't fit into a neat little box? Privlo, P-R-I-V-L-O, a new kind of mortgage lender, takes a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify, even if you have a one-time credit blemish. Apply at privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast or call 855-477-4850. Privlo, get home. Pretty much every week, we talk about a new study or finding here on Inquiring Minds. And we do that partially because we have a lot of confidence in the system that produces those studies, that there's peer review in place and that those studies have been reviewed by various scientists, editors, and journalists to a certain extent. But every now and again, bad science gets through and gets published. And that poses an interesting dilemma for science. Uh, Once the error is found, which is non-trivial to find some of these errors, whether it's intentional or simply just an honest mistake, that's when the retraction process kicks in. But that process in science was largely invisible until recent times. For a long time, you just get a short notice from the journal saying such and such paper was re- has been retracted by the authors. Or papers would just disappear altogether with no statement whatsoever. So I called up Ivan Aransky, who founded a blog called Retraction Watch, because he was suspicious of this and thought it really wasn't benefiting science in any way. Ivan is the editorial director of MedPage and teaches medical journalism at NYU. Retraction Watch tracks and expands upon those simple retractions, interviewing editors and scientists involved, and it's quickly become one of the most highly influential sites uh, for science editors and journalists. And even though there's a real low number of retractions per year versus the total number of journals uh, published, I asked him why it takes so long for many of these retractions to occur. Listen to him here. It's the fact that the scientific paper is held, it's basically held up as gospel. It's We fetishize it. I mean, I don't know if you can fetishize gospel. That's probably a horrible mixed metaphor. Uh, maybe some people do it. But you know, we really fetishize the paper so much that once it's published, you, it's hard to undo. You can't unring that bell. And so if someone challenges the paper that you've built your career on or that's in a major journal like Nature or Cell or Science, you're going you're gonna to be pretty defensive. You're going to fight like hell to not retract it uh, unless you're, you know, a very honest scientist and there are lots of those out there. Because if you lose that paper, you, you could not necessarily lose tenure or lose a you know, a grant or anything, but you might not get the next grant. You might not get promoted. You might not advance in your career or get prizes. You know, he's exactly right. Some of my proudest moments throughout my entire graduate and postdoc career came when I found out that one of my papers was accepted for publication. And, you know, it really is a thrill and it's exciting. Um, But that's not when the exciting science happened, you know? I don't think I've met a scientist who really talks about the writing process and the editing process and the review process is their most enjoyable uh, part of being a scientist. But I, I agree that this idea that the paper is the end product of the science 
is probably misguided, especially in an age where there's so much dramatic uh, information sharing on on a, such a, a, a short time scale that it seems unreasonable that we wait for this process that, that is slow and in, in some ways antiquated uh, for uh, results to really be shared widely. And it's really not how science is done in a lot of ways. No, and I think, you know, we are coming to a point where this has to change because there are simply more papers being published than any field can sort of consume and internalize and understand. So, you know, we I think there is going to be a major change that's going to happen in the next decade or two um, when it comes to papers. But let's talk, before we get there, a little bit about what else is going on in the news this week. So there's one big news item uh, that has been dominating the science news landscape and it was it's about CRISPR. Do you know CRISPR? Yeah, of course. Science acronyms for George the win. Church. Clustered <laughs> regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Of course. Uh well, let's back up for, before we talk about CRISPR itself. So DNA, good thing, generally speaking. Well, I guess it depends whose. But yeah. yeah, generally speaking, <laughs> but then there's mutations that right. affect DNA, and those can be good or bad, depending on the the impact of those mutations. And over the past, I would say, decade, maybe 15 years, there's been a lot of work done into reversing some of those bad mutations that result in disease. And we heard a lot about gene therapy. And gene therapy, which is a nice sounding catchy word for, I think, the lay public, is really about loading viruses with snippets of DNA to insert in cells. And if there's enough viruses that get enough of that in a lot of cells, you can potentially reverse the disease. But that's another one of those stories in medicine where it seems like the hype didn't pay off, right? We don't have gene therapies for all the things that one would think by now we should have cures for. And there's reasons for that. There was a hype collapse. There was actually a, a problem in about, the, I think it was about the year 2000, where there's a gene therapy applied to a human volunteer, and he had an exceptional immune response. And uh, things went downhill from there, let's just say, for gene therapy. But it's made a comeback. Uh, but what if we go be a step beyond gene therapy, which is the idea of we'll just load in enough good DNA on viruses to insert? What if we could just do a cut and paste into the DNA? Just cut out the bad snippet, the gene that is causing uh, the disease or the mutation that, that we don't want, and insert the good DNA on a cellular level. Sounds very efficient. Yeah, that sounds great, right? That's essentially what CRISPR is, which is a set of molecules. It's actually uh, some DNA from bacteria that has developed over time as a way for bacteria to fight off viruses. And this technique has been adapted um, with the potential of targeting really specific sets of DNA because within CRISPR, the, you can attach uh, to a really specific stand of DNA, which is not something you could do before, and then cut it apart. So it's incredibly exciting from the cut. And then if you can just do the paste, this would be thrilling. And, and there's been a lot of CRISPR discoveries over, over the last couple years. In fact, there was a group at MIT that actually cured a genetic liver disorder in a mouse in 2014. Huge news, right? And this is also how we're going to bring back the woolly mammoth, right? Oh, my goodness. We're not <laughs> referencing Gattaca or de-extinction oh. in this talk. Sorry. Um, but how about this? Here's the next step. What if we did it instead of in an adult um, situation where the disease is already manifested? What if we did it in embryo? Ooh, so now we're really talking about changing the DNA of an embryo uh, for... You know, what purposes? Are we talking about just eliminating the potential for a devastating disease? Or are we actually talking about designing a ba designer baby? So the ooh is the most understated re response because the scientific community didn't go ooh. They went, oh, insert expletive here. Because everyone knew this was coming and a group of Chinese scientists actually did it uh, against most of the recommendations of the larger scientific community. And they actually experimented with embryos. And to be clear, they used human embryos that had a defect. So they were never going to grow into humans. Uh, and it, it's going to take too long to explain why they're defective embryos. So I'm just going to gloss over that. And they took, they had 86 embryos. Uh, of those, 71 of them actually grew, divided, essentially grew in some way. They tested on 54. Only 28 of them actually had the cut part of, of the CRISPR process work. And in some cases, uh, actually in most of the cases, 
the targeting of the specific DNA slice didn't actually work. They targeted the wrong chunk of DNA. But, but, this is the giant but here. I can't emphasize this enough. I might say but another four times. It kind of worked. Holy cow. Yeah. Is this the kind of thing that we would never see done in the U.S. because no ethics board would approve this research? And Yeah, this is a bioethicist nightmare or um, their dream come true, depending on how you want to approach this. Uh, a couple hours ago, the director of the NIH uh, released a statement saying that there should be a ban on this work. Uh, globally, not just in the U.S. So you can be almost assured that this won't happen. And the scientific response has been uh, borderline vitriolic. They're like, this is totally ethically, this is beyond ethically gray. This is just ethically not something we should do. They used a, a technique that wasn't mature enough at this point. We haven't progressed. But I think the underpinning of it is is that there is a lot of hope that this is where we're going to end up Maybe not now, and maybe not in this way, but within a, a, some period of time that we're going to get to this point where we could p- potentially fix a disease. And is this is the ethical question because this was done, I'm assuming, on human embryos? What if it was done on, you know, some non-embryonic stem cell? Uh, you know, would that be okay? Well, let me pose it to you this way. Let's talk about Huntington's disease, which is this really specific genetic disorder where if you have the gene variant, you're 100% likely to develop this disease. There's no like room for error. And let's say you have a parent with Huntington's, um, the Huntington's gene and one without. There is a chance that the embryo that you're dealing with does not have the Huntington's gene. One in four, right? And so this is a problem just mathematically, rather beyond just the ethics. Like there is a way they can assure that what they're correcting for is actually there in 100% of the cases in this embryo. Well, first you'd have to check to see. I mean, that you, you that test you could do, right? I mean, yeah, but in every single uh, cell is the question, is it going to definitely be there? Um, it, it, it poses so many ethical questions, it makes my head hurt. So beyond just the, the, uh, the question you posed early, like the designer, aspect, which I'm just going to push aside because it's science fiction in a lot of ways. The idea of uh, doing this kind of experimentation on any human cell line at the point that we're at with the technology uh, seems uh, premature. But, you know, I think this is the time to have these discussions because you don't want to get to the point where it actually happens. And then, you know, it's too late to decide whether this should be banned or ethically okay or whatever. Once once the data are out there and, you know, if you pose the case of, of the couple that wants to have a child and, you know, Huntington's disease is a terminal disease, right? So you could argue, but still a lot of people obviously live fulfilling lives that have Huntington's disease. Um, but if you... If you were such a couple and you had the means and everything and, you know, would you would it be more ethical to have all of your, you know, embryos or, you know, take take the the egg from the woman and the sperm from the man and create embryos that don't have. I don't know. Like, is that what what's more ethically correct to make sure that you only have children that have that don't have the mutation because of the way that you choose which embryo you're going to implant in the woman's uterus? Or, you know, do you use CRISPR and take it out? Or none of those things? This is why I'm not a bioethicist. I don't know the answer to that question. I think that's a really difficult question. But and I think the scientists are trying to temper all of the excitement that came out of this uh, story because it reached, you know, national level. And it's sort of international news in terms of the the science. This is groundbreaking work that's going to go somewhere important is what all the scientists sort of feel like, but they don't want they feel like the cart is ahead of the horse right now. So given the topic of this week's show, where was it published? So here's the best part of the story. Uh, It was initially submitted to um, a, a nature journal, and they rejected it on ethical grounds. I wondered, because of course, any journal, you know, it's it's in the journal's kind of ethical standard to not publish unethical research. So it actually published in a different open access journal, I think it was called like Protein and Biology or something like that. Um, but 
I think the the funny part is every scientist that you talked to about this knew this was coming. This day was coming, and it, it just came here sooner than they expected because immediately there's op-eds in every journal about this, and op-eds from leaders in the field. George Church published an op-ed. Uh, there's stories in the Times about this. Uh, everywhere you go, you'll see uh, rebukes from the scientific community. But I think there's a glimmer here. I, I think it can we can get lost in the negative story or the ethics story here. But man, this is science fiction becoming science reality in some way. And I just want to remind our listeners that if you're more interested in CRISPR, you can actually listen to one of our previous episodes, episode 61, in which Cynthia Graber interviewed George Church on that very topic. I have a, f- a, a follow-up to this because it relates to our, our topic to this. I have a, a second story. It's not science news. It's rage news is what I call it. it. This is the thing that was the most infuriating story of the week. Kishore, are we on for a rant? Oh, yes. We're going to get a rant. So there is a postdoc at the University of Sussex in England. Her name's Fiona Ingleby. Uh, submitted a manuscript to be published in a, in a journal that PLOS runs. And uh, this manuscript was really about the gender differences when transitioning from a PhD to a postdoc. And in fact, her findings weren't really very controversial. She found that men that finished their PhDs uh, had more other author papers, meaning like second, third, fourth author papers than women, but there was no difference in first author applications. Yeah, pretty mellow kind of stuff. First author papers, you mean? First author papers, yes. Pretty mellow stuff, though, overall. She received some review responses, and I'm going to quote one here. Uh, as unappealing as this may be to consider, another possible explanation would be that on the average, the first authored papers of men are published in better journals than those of women, either because of bias at that journal or because the papers are indeed of a better quality on average. And it might well be that on average, men publish in better journals, perhaps simply because men, perhaps, on average, work more hours per week than women due to marginally better health or stamina. He's right. It is an un- unappealing. <laughs> it's incredibly <laughs> unappealing. This is the most sexist review of a scientific paper I've ever mm, heard. Men work harder than women, and that's why they publish more. This story <laughs> broke on Retraction Watch uh, with our upcoming guest, Ivan Ransky writing the note. And immediately, the editor of PLOS replied in a comment on retraction watch issued a statement of apology and said they're looking into appealing the the review it's just sad i it's it's incredibly offensive that somebody would uh, write something to that effect (laughs) well i think there's also a reference there about how uh, men a man on average can run a mile faster than a woman right and that's where this whole health and stamina thing comes in i mean look it might be true but show me the data (laughs) Hey, that's why I'm here. I'm here to bring that mean for men back over. I'm doing a whole lot less work than most women I know on a weekly basis. I'm sure that, Indre, you can outrun me on a mile if we went out right now. I'm trying to help the cause. That's just regression to the mean. (laughs) That helps in some cases. So, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely in some ways proving the point of the importance of this particular paper. And speaking about how men say stupid stuff every now and again, I actually have a correction from last week's show. I mentioned the Atkins diet being a high-protein diet. It's actually a low-carb diet, as pointed out by a listener. And uh, in fact, uh, it still doesn't work. So there you go. That's my correction <laughs> huh, for the week. But doesn't I always thought Atkins did include a high-protein component. Because wasn't that, isn't that part of it, that you're supposed to eat more protein and... I think that's fewer carbs. I think that's the perception, but it's really a low carb diet is what it's about. All right. Well, thank you for, you know, retracting. (laughs) No problem. So uh, with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Ivan Aransky. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Are you self-employed, an entrepreneur or a business owner who's successful, has good credit, but can't get a mortgage through a traditional lender? Privlo, P-R-I-V-L-O, a new kind of mortgage lender can help. They take a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify for a mortgage. 
Even if you have a bankruptcy or foreclosure that's over a year old or a short sale over six months ago, you still may be eligible. Same thing if you've avoided taking on debt and have a clean but limited credit history. Privlo knows the gig economy is the new normal and built a company that specializes in home loans tailored to fit real lives. To apply, go to privlo.com podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privilo.com slash podcast or call 855-477-4850. Privlo, get home. And now, in an amazing demonstration of compliance, that means Privlo's on the up and up, a few words from the government. Privlo Inc. is a licensed equal housing mortgage lender, NMLS LD1076413, licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Illinois Residential Mortgage Licensee, Washington CL 1076413, Texas License 107679. Ivan Aransky, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Great to be here, Kishore. Thank you. So let's start with the scope of retractions. How many are happening in the field, and is this something that's growing? Yeah, so there are about 500 retractions a year right now, which, you know, it's a number. It doesn't tell you very much unless you look at how many papers are published every year. And give or take, that's about 1.4 million. So this is a very, very small percentage of papers. It's something like, you know, 0.02% or something like that. That number, though, is increasing, and it's outpacing the increase in the number of papers published. So uh, Nature magazine, looking at the data several years ago, found that the number of retractions from 2001 to 2010 had gone from about 40 a year to about 400 a year. In the same period of time, although the amount of papers published every year had grown, it had only grown about 44%. So you're seeing a tenfold increase in the number of retractions, only a 44% increase in the number of papers published. That means that, you know, there has been, I, I think explosion is not, you know, a terrible word to use in this scenario. Are all retractions created equal, or are we seeing different reasonings for why papers are retracted? So that's it's a really good question because overall, about two thirds of retractions since the history of time, you know, time began, which in the case of retractions is about 1977, it turns out, about two thirds of those are due to something that would be considered misconduct by a federal agency known as the Office of Research Integrity. Uh, and though that definition includes what is referred to as FFP or falsification, fabrication, plagiarism. Falsification and fabrication, loosely speaking, are both what the you know, layperson might just think of as faking it. And it might mean actually faking it, like there's no, there are no data and you just made it up. Or it could be that you're only presenting data from one experiment that worked, but actually there were 16 that didn't or some version of that. You're taking something and using Photoshop to make it look much better than it is. That's that sort of faking stuff. So that's about two-thirds of retractions. Again, plagiarism is in there. About a third of the time, in some small percentage, actually, we just don't know because retractions are, are often very opaque. That's one of the reasons Adam Marcus and I founded Retraction Watch, because we looked at these notices and often we couldn't tell heads or tails. Even when it was trying to tell the story, it was unclear, but some actually say nothing. But most of that other third is due to honest error. Now, we used to think that only about half of retractions were due to fraud. So the other half were due to honest error. What we've learned, and again, not to pat ourselves on the back, but it's in some part because of the work that Adam and I have been doing in terms of actually figuring out what some of these notices are talking about, and that's credited in a paper that came out about two and a half years ago in a major journal, is that, in fact, you know, two-thirds of them are due to fraud. But they're not all created equal even among those, and some of those are much more serious fraud uh, than, than other cases, and some of them involve, you know, clinical trials involving human beings, uh, others just involve, you know, something that happened in the lab that, you know, may have involved in something in a test tube or something like that or a cell line, a group of cells growing in a Petri dish. So there's there's a wide range that we see. I'm caught thinking of what a retraction actually looks like. I don't think I've ever read the actual retraction. So can you give us an example of what a paper being retracted, what the process looked like and what that experience is like for scientists? Sure. So the, the experience varies a great deal. Uh, your mileage may vary, as, as they like to say. 
you might be someone who works in the lab and blows the whistle because you realize something's not working right. Uh, most commonly, you're, you're a reader who looks at a study and says, you know, something doesn't look right to me, and you start, you start to dig at it, and you maybe you write a letter to the editor of the journal, you write a letter to the author. Uh, sometimes those are ignored, uh, particularly if you're raising the concerns anonymously. We see a lot of that happen. Uh, but often, and you know, hopefully more and more often, people take the complaint seriously, the allegation seriously. They look into it. They might do an investigation. They might have to get quite serious about that investigation, involve the university. Uh, that, that often happens. And then the journal kind of has to decide what to do. Now, the author may have at that point, by that point, actually said, you know what, there is something wrong. I'm going to retract this paper or I'm going to correct this paper. There are thousands of corrections in the literature, more than 100,000 in fact, many more than there are retractions. Or the author may say, well, there's nothing wrong here and I don't think we have to do anything. Thank you very much for your concern. And then the journal kind of has to decide what to do. Now, some journals will leave it up to the author and say, that's fine. Others will say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to take a stand here. And it may not be a very popular stand. We're going to retract this paper. And they can do that. That's really considered totally you know, kosher by the Committee on Publication Ethics, which is a sort of unofficial governing body in, in this area in scientific publishing. Uh, but then, of course, there are lawyers sometimes involved. And so when you read some of these notices – you you really can't tell what they're trying to say. Some of them, it's deliberate that they don't want to say anything. And we ask editors sometimes, why do you publish notices that say things like, this article has been withdrawn by the authors? And that's the entire thing. I mean, how how transparent is that? And they have various rationales. They They don't want to discourage people from retracting. They're interested in correcting the scientific literature. We think that a good retraction notice actually includes all the reasons for retraction. So the reason might be, well, this figure was flipped around and it shouldn't look that way. It might be, it turns out, these data, we can't find them or they never existed. Can you actually give us an example of a famous retraction? Because when I was sort of just thinking in my head before I went on Retraction Watch, I think the most famous one I know about is the Wakefield one regarding the uh, autism in the Lancet. But I'm sure there must be hundreds of examples that you pull from. Sure. I, I think, you know, famous is... In the eye of the beholder, I think the Wakefield case is a is a pretty famous one, and like many uh, stories, it was very drawn out. Uh, it took twelve years to actually happen. Uh, there were questions about that paper for many years. Um, one example of a retraction notice that kind of got our you know tingle our spider sense tingling a little bit was it appeared in August of 2012, and actually a whole mess of them appeared. It turned out that there were um, 28. Uh, identical notices or more or less identical notices for this one author. And what it said, it included the phrase that the peer review process had been compromised. Now, peer review, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners know, is the process by which outside experts, peers, scientific peers, vet a paper and say, yeah, this this can stand up. You know, the conclusions follow from the findings. The, fi the experiments seem to have been done properly. You know, we, we can sort of – we should publish this and let it be out there and let other people read it and critique it as well. Uh, and so when you see that peer review is compromised, well, what does that mean exactly? And it was a pretty detailed notice. It gave a lot of information, but it didn't actually say what that meant. And we contacted the uh, the editor of the journal and, and found out. And, and here's what had happened. There was a – it's a South Korean researcher named Hyung In Moon. And Hyungin Moon was under the same pressures that a lot of researchers are under nowadays. I would I would argue probably all researchers are under. You know, he had to get funding, he had to get new grants, he had to get in order to do all that and to get promotion and tenure, he had to publish papers. You know, that is the currency of of the realm when it comes to science, when it comes to academia. You have to publish in the peer reviewed literature. And by all accounts, his his work was solid. It wasn't sort of knocking anyone's socks off or revolutionizing the world, but it was solid work and it was publishable. But he wanted to make sure that it got published. So what he did was when the when he submitted the paper, a lot of journals, and they've now cut back on this thanks to a lot of stories like this, but they ask you, well, who do you think should review this paper? Can you suggest some reviewers? And so he did suggest some reviewers and he put in, you know, uh, Jim Smith, right? And Jim Smith, oh, famous plant biologist, he would know this work. And Jim Smith, let's say, is a real biologist at, I don't know, UC Berkeley. 
And so the editor would say, oh, that makes sense, and click on something and say, send a peer review request to Jim Smith. What the editor didn't realize, because it's hidden from him or her, is that Jim Smith's email wasn't, you know, jsmith at berkeley.edu the way it should be. It was jsmith1 at gmail.com. And the person who actually controlled that email address was none other than Hyungin Moon. So, oh my God. So who's <laughs> this Hyung- is nefarious. So Hyungin Moon, guess what? He got a bunch of peer review requests very quickly. And they were, of course, about his own papers. And he was only too glad to peer review his own papers. If you asked me to, you know, edit my own work or critique my own work, boy, would I be happy to do that. And so he wrote these reviews and they were all really good reviews. In other words, when I say good, they were, they were certainly positive and they said, yes, publish this, but they were also very detailed. They led the editor to believe that this was a very, you know, thorough review. And they would say things like, oh, you know, publish this. Here's some critiques. You know, table one should be in a different color. Uh, you should flip the axes of this one. You know, detailed sort of scientific stuff like that. What nailed Hyung In Moon was that all of the reviews came back within 24 hours. Now, you know, when I tell that story to scientists, I get a big laugh every single time because they know you can't get anyone to even agree to peer review a paper within 24 hours, let alone <laughs> you've actually done the review in 24 hours. So this all unraveled and he, he did confess and this, of course, led to 28 retractions. It turned out he had already had seven retractions for other not so good reasons. So he's up there in the leaderboard, although nowhere near the, uh, the actual leader of, in terms of retractions. But there's a, I think a story that encapsulates a lot. It, it, number one encapsulates you know, the pressures scientists are under, the incentives that they are sort of pressured by. Uh, but it also encapsulates a reasonably detailed retraction notice that still didn't quite tell the whole story. It turns out, fast forward a little bit, uh, the day that you and I are talking, we published a, an item about another 43 papers that got retracted by a particular publisher in a, in a number of journals where people had somehow managed fake peer, peer reviews, whether it was by themselves or by someone else who the editors didn't realize. And there are about 170 papers that have been retracted now in the literature. It's not a small number if you think about it because of this fake peer review problem. And it's something that a lot of, a lot of editors and publishers are concerned about and that I'm being asked to speak on various, you know, panels and at different conferences about because it's really, it's a vulnerability in the peer review system, which I think can be patched like anything. You're always fighting last year's battle, but it's something a lot of people are concerned about. Let's talk about punishment. Are the people that are actually retracting papers, especially in the case of fraud, really facing any sanctions or consequences due to it? So a few people who are found guilty of fraud, to be precise, it's about a dozen a year uh, in the U.S., and they're found guilty of fraud by a federal agency called the Office of Research Integrity. And that governs, that has oversight over NIH funding, so federal funding. And the NSF has a few more cases that they, you know, prosecute. But it's a pretty small number, again, from the ORI, about a dozen a year. And this is, again, if you're looking at 500 retractions a year, uh, more, a good more than half of those are from the United States. So, and two-thirds of those, not to get all mathy here, but two-thirds of those involve fraud. Now, only about a dozen people are actually facing sanctions. Now, what's a sanction? Okay. You could not be eligible for funding for a certain amount of time. Most of the time, you have to have supervision if you're going to get federal funding, which is pretty bad. But, uh, you know, the question is, what happens to the money that you use fraudulently, uh, that someone in your lab used fraudulently? And the answer is that most of the time, nothing. Uh, it's either it's been spent or it hasn't been sort of, you can't prove that it was involved directly in the fraud. Or what's usually the case is that the Department of Justice has pretty big fish to fry. You know, I'm sitting here just several blocks from Wall Street, where the DOJ has been obviously quite uh, intense lately. Some would argue not intense enough, but, you know, they're getting billion and two and three billion dollar settlements. Um, that's a bit more than they would get if they went after a, a lab that had committed fraud on half a million or a million dollar grant. So look, they have to prioritize. That's that's neither right nor wrong. It just is what it is. Does the host institution or university ever face any sanctions for the actions of the scientists? Uh, essentially not. I mean, there there may be suffer a bit of a reputation, you know, damage, but that doesn't seem that seem that's somewhat fleeting. It 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 doesn't last. Uh, there was one case that happened 
a few years ago now, it happened sort of the sanctions were announced at the end of 2013, uh, and this was at uh, Iowa State University in Des Moines. This is someone who he actually had faked his results. What he had done was he, he was working on an HIV vaccine, and he was working in a rabbit model, so he was giving this vaccine to rabbits and then testing their blood to see if they were creating, you know, antibodies, a response to the vaccine for HIV. And he wanted to make sure the results came out right and they weren't coming out right. So he took human blood samples that he had in a freezer somewhere and actually spiked the rabbit blood with them and made it look as though they were responding to this vaccine because these human blood samples had antibodies in them. And that, that's pretty brazen, I have to say. We, we've seen a lot of fraud, but that was a particularly brazen case. Uh, to make a long story short, it was Iowa. Uh, I think your listeners will be familiar with uh, Chuck Grassley, the senator, one of the senators from Iowa. Uh, Chuck is a pretty law and order kind of guy. And he was not happy to hear that a state institution in his state using federal funds had committed fraud. So he got wind of it. He started writing letters, doing all sorts of things. And this researcher... Uh, is actually, he's accepted a plea bargain. We don't know the details of that plea bargain, uh, but it, it's not unlikely that he will face jail time. But very, very few researchers who were found to have committed pretty serious fraud ever do that. There have really been like four cases in the past 30 years where someone has committed fraud. Now, excuse me, where someone has gone to prison for committing fraud. And I would ask you, you know, if you committed fraud with other federal dollars, these are federal taxpayer dollars, would you escape prison most of the you know, vast majority of the time? And you know, the answer is actually no. And so the question is, should some of these folks be facing criminal charges? And Adam and I feel that it should at least be part of the potential sanctions, the way it's not right now. It's sort of off the table. And in fact, universities should be forced to pay back some of these grants. You know, they're profiting on this, essentially, even, you know, it's a nonprofit university, but they get indirect costs of, you know, 20, 30, 40% of NIH grants, they should be forced to give those back. Whether or not it was a bad apple or anything like that, it sends a message that oversight is really important and that fraud isn't such a good thing to do. So while we're talking about a low number of retractions overall in the larger ecosystem, these seem like pretty big issues that attack how the currency of, of scientific work is conducted, the incentive models, the control systems in place uh, at journals. So what should be done to minimize some of these problems? So, you know, Adam and I, we have certain opinions about all that, and we wish we had solid answers that had with it back, you know, backed with evidence. Um, people are really still starting to – just starting to think about all these things and starting to think about different models. Uh, one of the issues is that you have a sort of winner-takes-all mechanism in terms of funding and science. And so Farrakh Fang, who's published a lot on retractions, he's a microbiology researcher up at University of Washington, uh, he and a colleague have suggested that maybe we should do away with this winner-takes-all phenomenon. In other words, instead of a couple big labs in each field getting millions of dollars in grants, well, let's think about 20 labs getting half a million dollars in grants instead. Uh, that might allow for, you know, a better sort of distribution. But even more fundamentally, it's the fact that the scientific paper is held, it's basically held up as gospel. It's We fetishize it. I mean, I don't know if you can fetishize gospel. That's probably a horrible mixed metaphor. Uh, maybe some people do it. But, you know, we really fetishize the paper so much that once it's published, you, it's hard to undo. You can't unring that bell. And so if someone challenges the paper that you've built your career on or that's in a major journal like Nature or Cell or Science, you're going you're gonna to be pretty defensive. You're going to fight like hell to not retract it uh, unless you're you know, a very honest scientist and there are lots of those out there. Because if you lose that paper, you, you could not necessarily lose tenure or lose a you know, a grant or anything, but you might not get the next grant. You might not get promoted. You might not advance in your career or get prizes. And so as long as that's the case, as long as we are sort of acting as if science happens once a week, in, you know, when a big journal comes out instead of every minute of every day, and there are much fewer, there are many fewer eureka moments of the sort that we romanticize than we think there are, than we'd like to think there are, we're going to have a problem. And so one of the solutions that Adam and I are big proponents of is this notion of post-publication peer review, which is, 
you know, a lot to say. There's a lot of P's there. So I, you know, my tongue sort of gets twisted after a while. But what that means is you actually look at papers and critique them after they're published. And you treat this like a sort of living document. There's a great site called PubPeer. Uh, it's PubPeer.com where people can even leave anonymous comments on any paper that's published and is sort of indexed in Medline, in, in PubMed, which is the sort of government, uh, U.S. government uh, database of papers, uh, or has what's known as a digital object identifier, which is at this point in time most papers. So you can critique any paper you want, and what happens is the corresponding author of that paper actually gets an email, an automatic email, from PubPeer saying, hey, there's a comment on your paper. You, you might want to check it out. And authors are starting, you know, at, at the beginning and, and still now. There are a lot of authors who either ignore it or kind of, again, are very defensive about it. But authors are starting to engage. And sometimes the comments are just, you know, asking for, for clarification of something. Sometimes they're pointing out errors. A number of corrections and retractions have happened because of PubPeer. Uh, and so this notion that we can actually think about science as the way science happens and, and actually that just brings back the joy and narrative of science in a way that, you know, the sort of big journal once a week approach to things has really warped and I would have to blame, you know, myself and other colleagues in the media for having kind of endorsed that at least implicitly the way we cover science and medicine. But that is one way that we can hopefully – you know, sort of break the the yoke of of this uh, you know fetish of fetishized papers to mix metaphors yet again. What about on the journal side? Because you mentioned off the top that it's oftentimes you get these retraction notices that don't tell you very much. Partially because I imagine the journals don't want this to be public knowledge, in a uh, at least complete public knowledge. Is there some something changing in terms of how journals are approaching retractions as well? So journals are scared in many cases of lawyers. And so you see a lot of notices that say nothing. And when you probe that a little bit, you find out that the researcher in question had lawyered up, you know, the way they do on, you know, law and order as soon as anyone raises an allegation. There actually been a couple cases just recently, the last several months of researchers suing, threatening to sue uh, there's one case that's still ongoing and actually a couple cases ongoing in Boston, uh, one in particular where a researcher in Brazil had had four papers investigated by his university. The university, I'm simplifying a little bit, basically said, well, it was sloppy, but it wasn't misconduct. And yeah, maybe we should correct the papers, but they don't have to be retracted. There's no fraud involved. The journal, which in this case was a journal called Diabetes, disagreed and, and put what's known as an expression of concern on the papers, which often leads to retraction or often, you know, sort of comes before retraction, but not all the time. And the, the researcher said, no way, I'm, I'm not going to tolerate that and actually sued. Um, the the long-term case is sort of ongoing, but in terms of defamation, but the judge uh, very quickly said, you, you can't have an injunction to block this. That would block the First Amendment, which we should all, of course, be very happy for. Uh, but this is happening more and more, and so I I hate to use that old you know the old saw chilling effect, but it's hard to imagine that publishers, especially smaller ones, this is the American Diabetes Association. They're reasonably big. They're well funded. They decided to fight this, and and I say good for them. But a lot of smaller publishers or smaller journals, they're not going to have those resources, and they're just going to cave. Um, but there's also this notion that if you make people say what exactly happened. You're going to just draw out the process much longer. You're going to delay things. And I, I appreciate that. Or you're going to discourage people from retracting to begin with. Uh, the problem with, with all that is that you basically are sweeping problems under the under the rug. You're sweeping, you know, matters just under the carpet. And that really, that it really isn't good for science. I mean, the thing we've learned, I think, in many aspects of life is that it's it's not the crime, it's, it's the cover-up. And if scientists, you know, many scientists and journals and universities are very afraid of acknowledging that there's fraud in science. And so that's, I think, a lot of what you see in terms of opaque retraction notices. But Adam and I have long argued that what scientists really should be doing in terms of long-term trust building, and there's some data behind this, is saying, you know, look, there is fraud in science, the same way there's fraud in every human endeavor. It's rare, which Adam and I would certainly agree with, uh, but it's not zero. 
And here's what we're doing to actually fight it. You know, hey, we have this whole peer review system, this whole robust way of correcting ourselves that really no other, you know, human endeavor has. We should be proud of that. Let's tell everyone about it and admit when there are, when there's fraud and when we find it. Because in that case, you can turn the story completely around and say, you know what us finding fraud means? It doesn't mean that science is broken. It doesn't mean that the NIH shouldn't fu be funded anymore, which let's face it, let's be honest, a lot of, you know, conservative politicians would have you want to believe that's, they use sort of some of these cases to say, well, see, scientists are corrupt. We shouldn't fund them. No. What it means is that we're actually looking for it and we're going to tell you about it so that it doesn't happen again. And these retractions, these are a sign of health. A rising retraction rate, that just means we're paying better attention and we have better tools to find all this stuff out. That should be the message. But the rising retraction rate, while I, I totally understand what you're saying, are beneficial uh, the explanation behind the retraction has to be complete for it to actually benefit science at large. It just can't be retracted in quiet uh, and it'd be beneficial. So I'm curious, like, what kind of mechanisms need to be in place to actually spread the message of what uh, what retractions are occurring and sort of reduce the stigma around them? Yeah, because sure, you're absolutely right. I mean, it has to go hand in hand if you're going to have more retractions or even if you aren't. It can't just be this paper's been withdrawn by the authors. And then, you know, a lot of those journals say, well, if you want more information, call the authors. Well, if they didn't want to publish it, why are they going to talk to me about it or you or anyone else? So what has to happen is that journals have to take as much time and energy and put as much resources into broadcasting retractions and, and corrections for that matter as they do the original papers. You know, journals are very good at getting the word out and having science journalists and health writers write about these studies and all that, they're not quite as good at promoting the fact that there are retractions. Now, some of that is actually a, something they can do with reporters and working with the media. But in the long term, what's really important is that whenever you try and access a paper that has been retracted or corrected, you should know that it's been retracted or corrected. I mean, that doesn't seem like a, pr a particularly controversial point. And yet, and this has been studied, a third of the time when you go to look at a retracted paper across a number of publishers, you don't have any sense it's been retracted. You just go there and it says, oh, here's this paper. Enjoy reading it or pay thirty-one ninety-five or whatever it is and here it is. And that's, that's just shameful. I mean, sure, some things fall through the cracks, but a third of the time. And so what Adam and I have been working on for some time and now with a really nice boost from the MacArthur Foundation with a, a large grant, we're actually building a database of retractions and retraction notices, uh, much more detailed than you can get anywhere else, much more comprehensive than you can get anywhere else. It'll be open access, freely available to everyone. And the hope is that it'll be sort of integrated into any way that people access papers now. So you access researcher all, all different ways now. It's no longer, of course, go down to the stacks and find the dusty paper edition of the journal, read it, photocopy it maybe. No, you're, you're reading it all online. You've got a PDF. So any way you get to it, there'll be some kind of flag that says, hey, by the way, here's what's happened on this paper since it's actually come out. Now, what we would be interested in, of course, is just the retraction. That's a limited thing. It's, you know, something that we can bite off and, and really get done. But in the long term, there's great other technology out there that actually tells you, oh, and not only did someone, maybe this paper was retracted, but this other paper, you know, 18 people built on it. And here's some really interesting findings that sort of followed from it. So don't waste your time doing the work that those people did, but move on. Or 18 people tried it. It didn't work. It doesn't have to get retracted, but do you really want to be the 19th person when you've got other fish to fry in your lab? So all of these things, it kind of has to be, it has to be part of the ecosystem. And that's the great thing about technology. It's the same technology that allows people to, you know, make things up or use Photoshop to, for, for evil. But it also allows, all this technology also allows you to do good things. It's, so amazing that it hasn't happened yet, but it's also a huge project. So I want to wish you luck on that because I imagine there's going to be some bumps along the way for that. And I wanted to highlight something peculiar that I found on Retraction Watch that I was a little surprised to find. You have a section called Doing the Right Thing, which is really about groups that sort of retract papers themselves. And you try to bring highlight to that. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, doing the right thing is a, it's a category on our site. We have tons and tons of categories, you know, everything from 
a particular journal, a publisher, a subject, an author, et cetera, et cetera. And so doing the right thing is – I don't remember exactly how many items are in there now. We've we've published more than 2,000 posts uh, and I would say that th- there are dozens that are in the doing the right thing category. It's actually a suggestion of one of our commenters. We were writing something and we praised it because it was – you know, it was a good retraction. It said what had happened. And it was very clear that the authors had painstakingly and, and again, at some risk to their own careers and some risk to their own reputations had taken the step of retracting and being public about it. And one of our commenters said, what, what about a sort of doing the right thing category where you highlight these? And I said, wow, that's a great idea because that means there's now a URL. WordPress is great that way that I can just send people and say, yeah, here's a list of sort of scientists doing the right thing if you're looking for any stories like that. And the whole notion is that if you are transparent about things, people trust you more. Maybe not in that moment because you're like, oh, that guy, he makes mistakes. But wait a second. Everybody makes mistakes. I just made a mistake. You know, I probably made a mistake during this interview. If I go back and listen to it, and I would correct it. And that, that would hopefully add more trust rather than make people wonder. And there's some actual data about this. It's, it's pretty interesting Economists have started studying retractions. It's it's a good data set for them. Uh, it's pretty limited. There are something like uh, somewhere between three and four thousand retractions uh, over the past, you know, since the seventies. It's it's not a huge data set, and you know, there are certain categories and things that you can apply to them. One of the things they found is that among retractions that are done for you know obvious fraud, where people are dragged kicking and screaming to retract, or it's it's obfuscated and it's really not clear what happened, and it's clear that even maybe lawyers were involved, people in that situation, their work is cited less often after that retraction. And in fact, the whole field is cited a little bit less often after that retraction. Now, citation is really important in science. It's, you know, how you can tell whether people are paying any attention to your work. It's not the only way, but it's a pretty important way. And it's how you measure impact in many ways, for better or for worse. So, that wasn't terribly surprising. What was pretty cool about this study and, and a bit surprising and but also quite reassuring is that if you retracted a paper for honest error and it was clear that you had done that and you had gone out of your way to do it, kind of stuff that would fit into our doing the right thing category, you actually saw a bump in your citations. Now, this wasn't huge, but the point was it wasn't a decrease even though there is a stigma attached to retractions. And so – Did they give any of- guess or conclusion why? You know, they, they, they're pretty cautious. They're economists. Um, they, you know, they don't want to ascribe motivation or what have you. But I think it's fair to say that at least unconsciously and maybe consciously, scientists are rewarding good behavior. They're like, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. I could have made a mistake like that. And you know what? That's a difficult thing to do. I should reward that behavior. And or maybe you can be a little bit more, uh, you know, sort of a little bit less altruistic about it and say, well, look, at least I know that here's a researcher. She checks all her work. And when she finds a problem, she goes back and, and fixes it. So whatever I'm reading now, I can trust much more. We're in this period of quite a bit of change and uh, in the scientific publishing pro- uh, process, we've been talking about open access within the field for a more than a decade at this point, we're actually seeing products come on the market that are pushing that conversation forward. Do you see open access impacting retractions in any way? You know, it's interesting. People, uh, some people want to be very binary and, and look at the world in terms of open access versus sort of traditional or closed access journals. And they often ask us, you know, are there more retractions in one kind of journal than the other? And you really you can't really draw again it's not a huge data set but you can't really draw any conclusions like that uh, the one conclusion that we seem to be able to draw is that the closed access journals that are at the top of the ranking so you know nature cell science and some of the big medical journals as well that, are, that sort of have the highest impact factor those tend to also have the most retractions per capita in other words if you actually account for how many papers they publish pound for pound, they have more retractions. Now, that may be because there are more eyeballs on it, and that may be, be or that may be because you have to push the envelope to really get into those journals. Maybe both. Maybe something we're not even thinking of. Uh, but you know, in terms of open access itself, I think it can only help to have papers, you know, more eyeballs on papers. Again, you may see more retractions in some of those journals in the short term, but it also means people know that everyone's looking at it. 
Uh, open data is probably more of something that's going to have an effect because people can actually check. You can't get away with as much if you actually have to publish your data in a place people can find it easily and not have to ask you for it or not have to just not be able to find it at all. So open data is really important, and that, that actually sort of brings up another big issue, which is repro you know reproducibility, right? So Adam and I focus very exclusively on retractions and. Two thirds of them for fraud and something or something that would be considered misconduct. A third for honest error. But then there's this whole wide world out there of studies that can't be reproduced, and that is a much bigger problem. Adam, Adam and I would be the first to admit that it's a much bigger problem. Uh, John Ioannidis, who's uh, over at Stanford, he's done a tremendous amount of work on this. Very powerful, uh, really good arguments for this lack of reproducibility, you know, he actually argues, you know, most published findings are false. He doesn't mean fraudulent. He doesn't mean fake. He just means they don't hold up when you repeat the experiment and when you do it a little differently. That's a really big issue that a lot of people are hoping. Uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Irons, who's uh, also in the Bay Area, she's got a project uh, funded by the Arnold Foundation, the Reproducibility Initiative, to try and look at cancer studies, just a small sliver of the world right now, in terms of reproducibility. And open data will really help with that because everyone can check your work. And that's what scientists really should want. You know, they shouldn't be trying to hide because then you're no better than any other system that's not transparent. You know, why not share your work, admit your mistakes, and just let science move forward more quickly? So when you fast forward a few years, whether it be five years or 10 years, what do you hope the ecosystem looks like? Well, I'm glad you asked me what I hope it looks like. Sometimes I get asked what I think it'll look like, and I hate making predictions. Um, predictions are often wrong. Um, I, you know, what I hope is that we have sort of downgraded the importance of the scientific paper itself, not because that's not valuable, not because peer review isn't valuable, but that we've somehow started to give credit for things that are not scientific papers. So maybe we give cre more credit for peer review, for example. Maybe we give more credit for post-publication peer review after something's published. Maybe we give more credit for sharing data. I mean, that would be a great thing. That sort of just speaks directly to collaborations. That would be a great goal, a great objective. Uh, maybe we give credit for creating software that other people can use and that can move science forward. You know, all of those things, to me, reflect how science should work and should want to work more than just looking exclusively at this paper. I think if you can loosen that, the, the stranglehold that papers have on funding, on, you know, all sorts of research exercises and, and evaluations, uh, you can start to see something that I think everyone will just be able to breathe more easily and do better work. That's a big wish, but I hope it comes true. Ivan Naransky, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Kishore. Glad to chat with you about retractions. So you're an editor at a journal. What do you think when you hear about retractions? I have to say, you know, from the editor's perspective, what makes me most nervous is this finding that there are people who have, when they suggest uh, potential peers to review their paper, they've gone so far as to change the email address and created one that, you know, they then have control over. That sends panic into my heart because... You know, I'm being an editor. One of the things that you need to do is get out peer review quickly. I mean, I get so much pressure from authors and rightly so. I mean, there are often times when it takes, it could take up to six months for me to get reviews back from a paper. If, you know, say the first 12 people that I contacted have declined or not responded or what have you, you know, how long do you wait, et cetera. It's a lot of work. And so I want to get this peer review done quickly. And I do tend to, when people give me suggestions for uh, peers, I usually take one of their preferred suggestions and then, you know, look for someone else that's already on my roster or someone that I know, etc. Um, so I definitely take their suggestions to heart. And I read their reviews afterwards, obviously, but I don't check the email address. I don't go and Google the person to make sure that the email address is correct. I mean, often they're already in the system. But yeah, like I can totally see this happening at my journal. And that makes me really afraid. I think that's an outlier situation. I don't know. Is it? 
I mean, the other the other side of this, though, makes me wonder if you're going to have bias um, against researchers from, you know, countries or institutions that are not as well known. Like, you know, I've seen an uptake, an uptick in the number of um, submissions to my journal, for example, from universities in China, many of whom I've never heard of. Right. So I don't know necessarily what the quality of those universities are. And I try very hard not to be biased because I know that there is a bias in the literature to, you know, put forth papers that are published from, you know, major institutions that we've all heard of. Um, and I, you know, I want to f- mitigate against that. Uh, so, but I-, I can also see that there can be situations in which they can create these peers that, and in my effort to sort of be, you know, non-biased, I, I might, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm worried that this also could become a problem that would differentially affect uh, individuals from countries whose universities are not as famous as those of the U.S. But this points to an opportunity. It is a really awesome time to think about how what the process looks like and try to fight back against that bias because largely we're seeing more and more papers come from international countries as you're saying and those institutions are growing in reputation and growing in uh, overall quality of the research coming out of it so i think that's solvable and there has to be a technology solution here too to help verify against fraudulent emails i feel like the idea of fraudulent emails has to have been tackled by Google years ago for other situations. Yeah, I no, imagine yeah. there's workarounds for a lot of these of just the pure fraud on the on the really kind of dumb level. I mean, I think so. And I think on the, some of the bigger journals, like in the Nature Group, for example, you know, they probably do have a team of people. You know, my journal is pretty small. It's Neurocase. It's run by, you know, a team of like four or five people in uh, Bristol, England. And uh, and so, you know, it's we. I don't know that we have the resources for it. And I think journals like mine are important because this is where work that doesn't get published in some of the bigger journals can get published. Um, and it's work usually that is a little bit more... Ex- not, I want to say experimental, but you know, we of- often publish case studies, for example, uh, which a lot of other journals don't publish. But you can learn a lot from a case. Anyway, I don't want to just, you know. But what if we did something like this? And you alluded to it earlier. What if we just published less? I think that is a big solution. Um, and I, I think people should publish less. I think you should wait until you have something really important to say before you go out and say it. And I think that that's how, you know, we should measure a quality of a person's career is not on and not even on necessarily the tier of the journal in which you publish. I mean, I think you should be savvy enough if you are an academic on faculty to be able to evaluate your peers work. Uh, for the quality, not for, you know, the name brand of the journal they publish in or the sheer number of publications that they have. Students, you heard it here first. Publish less by <laughs> Dr. Right. Indre Viscontis. <laughs> you know, I laugh about it because it seems overwhelming to change the currency of how research gets done right now. And that seems like such a wave of a, of a change. And I wonder if there are incremental steps that will get us to that position where publishing just is devalued a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if necessarily the right solution is to devalue publishing. I think the right solution is to give a premium for papers or for work uh, that, you know, is really kind of either groundbreaking or, you know, has a, a lot of quality to it. So, you know, that's, that's where I think um, sort of the direction should go. Because I think just saying like, oh, you know, if you, if you, I mean, I don't know how necessarily you would devalue these publications except by, you know, creating a bias against certain journals and, you know, like mine. <laughs> Are you scared of retractions? Like if you had to issue the retraction, would you be terrified of that process? I'm more scared of having made a mistake. I mean, I very vividly remember uh, being when I was an undergraduate, it was the very first paper that I had ever that we were working on submitting for publication. I was really excited. And I sat in a room with my mentor, who, of course, was the anchor author on the paper. And we were looking at a bunch of figures that I had made. And I we realized as we were sitting there that I had made a really stupid mistake. I mean, it was in Excel and I had done something stupid, like, I don't know, like erased a column or mislabeled something or something. And the figures looked completely different and that completely affected the statistics. 
Now, I was lucky. I had a really great mentor who didn't believe the data and made me, you know, sat down with me and looked at the raw data until we figured out what the mistake was. Um, but, you know, there are other people who are not so fortunate. And I, I remember the shame that I felt when, when we figured that out. I was so ashamed of this mistake. And after that, I made sure that I, it would never happen again because I know how close I came to publishing something that wasn't true. That's why I want to encourage Retraction Watch and other sites like it to emerge because that stigma needs to go away for us to really make a change. And I think Retraction Watch, what they've done is they've created a whole separate section about people doing right, where they retract stuff because of honest error, or they do it with a lot of transparency. And they want to take away this idea that retracting is bad that it can it's just part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I think though there's there's something to be said for, you know, not again, not fetishizing as Ivan mentioned the publication. So, you know, it should be more important to get it right than to get it published. I think that's really ultimately right now it's more important to get it published than to get it right. And that's the, you know, that's backwards. Well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I don't think we've solved the problem in this short hour. <laughs> well, that is a very sad thing, but I, at least we're working on it, right? Absolutely. Someone's working on it. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own retractions, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Privlo. Need a mortgage, but your finances don't fit into a neat little box? Privlo, P-R-I-V-L-O, a new kind of mortgage lender, takes a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify, even if you have a one-time credit blemish. Apply at Privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's Privlo.com slash podcast or call 855-477-4850. Privlo, get home. Inquiring Minds is produced by High H-Index author Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last